ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, I'm Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour today. Well, there have been some very cold mornings around parts of the state during this past week and you'll hear where frost damage has been reported. But have you lost any crops to frost? Uh, help me get a bit of a picture of where this been, has been happening across South Australia. If you can give me a call on 1300 222 or text me 0467 922 if you've uh, experienced a bit around your place as well. What have you lost and well, how much? Also coming up in this next half an hour, there's a call to look at heavy vehicle licensing arrangements for interstate and international workers on South Australian farms. This is why it is so important that the government acts and acts quickly to try and rectify this issue and make sure that regulations actually reflect the current circumstances for businesses, especially in primary industries. And maybe this is something that's impacting your business. I'll be keen to hear from you on this and we'll hear more about that very shortly. But first today, wine grape growers in the Clare Valley region are assessing the damage from frost that set in late last week. Some growers are facing losses of fruit of up to 70%, but further assessment could see even more. Mitchell Taylor is the managing director of Taylor's Wines, which was hit, but he's also the chairman of the Clare Valley Wine and Grape Association, Brooke Nindorf caught up with him and asked what happened. Yes, it was very unfortunate. On the um, early morning of Thursday the 26th, we we had frost conditions that began about midnight and continued through to about 7.30am. And um, on our particular property, temperatures got recorded as low as minus 4 I must um, say that it is not entirely across the entire uh, Clare Valley region, but it does appear to be hitting a, a lot of the, the, the southern part of the valley where where our family winery is, in the, the, the sub-districts of Watervale, Leasingham and Auburn. So, of course, there is a lot of variation with the... Um, that, the where the vineyards are situated, but it tended to be where where these crops hit in the lower lower uh, parts of the valleys, in some of the lower uh, planted vineyard areas. So we really do feel for all our, our grower community and, um, and 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 the winemakers that have had quite a difficult uh, year of late. And this one has really, um, you know, come from with, with little warning late in the um, in the spring season. So um, we're, we're still out there assessing the, the total damage. But you know, I'm very very stoic. People, we're getting together and, and, and sharing um, our our thoughts as a association on where we can help our members to make sure that you know we can work through this latest um, situation. Is this time of year seeing a frost like this one in the wine industry, is, is that rare? It's it's not rare. We used to say um, we're never out of the frost risk season. 
until the Melbourne Cup starts. So naturally, a week before it, particularly in the um, Clare Valley region, you know, this is the time from the spring season when when the um, the vines are out, they're, they're growing, and um, as we saw on um, that Thursday morning, the, the conditions just changed very quickly on us. So um, always a risk, but yes, you know, you always hope to get through the uh, spring conditions with minimal impact of frost. What sort of damage has been done? Um, the damage that's been done has, has varied. Um, when we're looking at our own vineyards, it appears some of the low low-lying areas that, that they could be up to, you know, 60 or 70 percent of the of the, the crop lost. So that, that, that is gut-wrenching. But having said that, it's very hard to estimate. You need a bit of time to assess the damage, and it does vary um, a lot throughout the region. Does it have flow-on effects for, for future seasons as well, Mitchell? Um, it it should not at this stage, but again, that, that'll be part of the, the workshops where we get all the growers uh, together as a region where we've got to look at, um, you know, how the vines are, what their vine health is and, yeah, how will they be set up, you know, for, for the next season. So hopefully at this stage there won't be, um, you know, any long-term effects. And you touched on this a bit before, but you, you, you'll obviously keep assessing this week and moving forward and, and also catching up with uh, with local growers to see where they can go from here. Yes, we will. We'll be touching base with all our growers. Um, they're going through a difficult time. They've got to, you know, get around their properties, assess it properly, and, and, and we'll be, you know, offering um, support and, and collaboration with the Australian Wine Research Institute, you know, to provide assistance in how best to, to manage things going forward. And you, you touch on this, but it just must be so devastating for these, these growers who've, who've faced a lot in the last few years in the wine industry to now have this uh, that they have to face uh, as well. Yes, it has been. You know, it's been a very tough few seasons. You know, we've had the impact of COVID, we've had we've had bushfires, um, we've had the Chinese interruption. So, you know, on top of all these elements, normally um, you, you do know there is agricultural risk out there. You're aware of it. You mitigate your damages. You make sure you've got um, good frost planning in place, which the team at Taylor's did and, and most of the growers throughout the region did. But, but again, yes, it, it, it really does hit you hard after a series of other obstacles that the um, the local community has faced and um, the wine industry as a whole has faced. As the Managing Director of Taylor's Wines, Mitchell Taylor, he's also Chair of the Clare Valley Wine and Grape Association. He was speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. It's 12 minutes past 12. Well, do you have a heavy vehicle licence to operate machinery on your property? What about your staff? Well, there are some exemptions that can be applied for to allow some family members and staff to operate tractors and heavy machinery. But if you employ backpackers from interstate or overseas, it's worth double-checking the rules because, as some employers in the state's oyster industry recently discovered, the licensing rules there are different. The member for Flinders, Sam Telfer, says it's worsening the skills shortage our ag industries are facing and told me that he's asked the government to address it. So the issue of 
primary production licensing in particular was brought to my attention uh, due to a, a recent state government crackdown on on the oyster industry, actually, who you know, obviously have their, their tractors that they use to, to launch their boats and and are also, like many areas of, of agriculture, aquaculture, primary production, are, are reliant on uh, itinerant workers coming from interstate or overseas to really fill the gaps that they've got at the moment. Uh, so the structures are in place for uh, permits to be arranged for people who own a a licence within South Australia to get a, a permit uh, to operate you know, tractors and heavy vehicles uh, if they're in primary production, you know, a family member of a, of a primary producer or an employee of. But unfortunately, uh, this process highlighted that it doesn't seem to be in place, the arrangements to have people from interstate or overseas get this permit uh, on their licence so they can fulfil the, the important duties that they're now being relied on by the the primary production industry. Mm. So if you've got a South Australian C-Class licence, you should be okay to go through that process. But if you're, say, coming from interstate or internationally, if you don't have a South Australian licence, then it isn't in in the current rules possible to to get that exemption? Yeah, so uh, someone with a C-Class licence working for or in a, a primary production business can make that application through Service SA for a, a special permit to operate slow-moving bigger vehicles in primary production, the tractors and and uh, windrowers and the like, which are over four and a half ton, so they are above the scope of what a C-class normally would be. Uh, but it's recognised that they are vital for uh, primary production businesses. But as I said, more and more uh, interstate and overseas workers are being relied on to do this important work and. And the oyster industry was the one that brought it to my attention, but I know it could be replicated across agriculture and horticulture and, and all levels of primary production because at the moment it's a pretty challenging um, workforce to try and get skills into your primary production businesses. Uh, unemployment is low and and uh, it's a challenge for businesses to be able to get these people to do this important work. And this is why they are relying on interstate and overseas and we need the government to be acting to properly reflect that need of, of primary production businesses. I've written to both Minister Coutsantonis and Minister Scriven, so yeah, the minister in charge of infrastructure and transport and the minister who is supposed to be the spokesperson for primary production to highlight this inconsistency and ask them to act and act quickly. I guess there would be considerations around um, safety. Is there a, a safety concern, though, if people are you know, coming onto farms without a C-class licence or a recognised licence here in South Australia and being allowed to operate you know, these, these heavy vehicles? So training is key in any primary production business, but someone with a, a C-class licence in South Australia will require the same sort of training as someone with a C-class licence coming from interstate or, or the licence arrangements that come from overseas. So we need to make sure primary production businesses are fully conscious, which I'm sure they are of their obligations as far as training goes. But this really seems like an anomaly which may not have needed attention previously, but it has come to the fore from my community and from the oyster industry in particular. And on closer investigation, it seems like it's an issue all across South Australia. 
That's the member for Flinders, Sam Telfer, speaking there. As he mentioned, he has written to the office of the Transport Minister, Tom Kutzentonis, and I did reach out to the Minister's office. I got this response from a government spokesperson, which reads, uh, Officers of the Department of Infrastructure and Transport were recently in contact with members of the South Australian Oyster Growers Association to discuss their concerns in detail. The department advises that an MR33A application for restricted licence to operate tractors and farm machinery is used for primary producers or employees of a primary producer who require a restricted licence to drive heavy tractors or agricultural machinery and do not hold the appropriate class of licence. Statement goes on to say applicants for a restricted licence must be aged 18 years or over and must have held at least a Class C driver's licence for 12 months. The department further advises that the option to email applications will be offered by Service SA in some circumstances. In those circumstances, customers will be provided with an appropriate email address to submit those forms for processing. And the statement wraps up by saying interstate and overseas workers who have held an equivalent C-class driver's licence for a minimum of 12 months and have a South Australian driver's licence are eligible to get a HR licence. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It's just going on 18 minutes past 12. Well, as livestock farmers are being hit hard with low sale prices and demand for livestock feed is high, pressure's on for crops this season to deliver high yields. Sydney cash grain broker at Stonex Australia, Stefan Meyer, was recently travelling through the far west of New South Wales and he was pretty impressed by what he saw. He caught up with Lily McEwer to chat about the innovation of growing crops in lower rainfall areas and some of the big differences that he noticed between Australian and international agriculture. Look, I think Australians farmers uh, are doing a fantastic job. Again, I was stunned on, on these, some of these back roads to find some wheat and barley fields middle of nowhere. They're not going to be big crops. I, I think, you know, a ton of the hectare kind of thing down there. But I think that's, that's an OK kind of yield uh, for wheat and barley in those regions. What do you think the farmers are doing out here? You said that you weren't really expecting to see many crops. What do you think they're doing to get these crops out of the ground? Look, I was fortunate uh, to know some of the farmers. We popped in and and spoke to some of the farmers. Um, You know, they're doing things like summer weed spraying, uh, soil conservation, uh, increasing water utilisation through summer weed spraying, as I said. But I think also, like, they're doing crop rotations. Uh, Some of these guys are leaving the ground fallow for a year. Um, they're also not like robbing the land with straw. A lot of these guys used to be uh, sheep and cropping. And I think what's really put these guys into high gear is going 100% cropping. I think there was a lot of compaction with the sheep and cattle back in the day. Yeah, but I was, I was honestly, I was, st- I mean, obviously there's some fields which are going off from this lack of rain. But, it, you know, the crops are good. But there's some regions of the fields where you can see that they are dying already. But there's also most of the fields are, are okay if not better than average for the region. Your family have got a property in Canada. How does it compare to this part of Australia? Obviously, the Canadians always claim to have invented zero-till farming, uh, and then the Australians adopted it many years later. Uh, I think Australians and the Canadians are very good friends and are like neighbours to each other, and I think we're fortunate to have each other. I know there's a lot of information sharing going on between the Canadians and Australians. On my family farm at home at the moment, we've got two Australians taking the crop off there, uh, we're, we're done on the wheat crops and we're currently about 75% through the canola crop at home, which has been yielding much better than expected as well. We've had a very dry summer, uh, as some of you may, as some of your listeners will know, but look, somehow again, we're growing crops in those regions with, with, uh, zero till and, um, uh, conserving moisture. I think timing is so critical in agriculture more than ever. 
you know, we, we plant our whole crop at home now in, in a two-week window. And I think you look at some of Australia's top farmers, they don't wait for the rain to fall. They plant it on a calendar. Most farmers plant April Fool's Days when they start planting. Whether it's going to rain or not, who knows, but they plant on the calendar. And I think that's been the big difference for Australian Canadian farmers is they plant per the calendar. Yeah, and we've all got fantastic gear nowadays. You know, some of these machines can do, uh, you know, harvest wheat at 80 tons an hour. Yeah, good machinery. And I think the other thing that's happened is the new generation of farmers don't want to work for free anymore. I see that with my brothers and my sister at home. They want to make a good wage. And I think, you know, back in the day, the farmer's sons, kids would work for nothing. But now it's like, no, we want to, we want to take our wives and kids out to somewhere nice for dinner as well. I think that's really changing agriculture. It's like people are starting to value their time much more than ever, which I think is a good thing. Out here in the far west, it's mostly sheep country. Do you think there is going to be a need for crops in areas that isn't typically cropping country to meet grain demands in other areas? Well, actually, interesting you say that. And I, my wife sometimes gets upset with me because I, I do follow a lot of back roads and uh, pull over in wheat fields. But I saw this one field near Menindi, which had, I think, the spacing. Well, the other thing that what that farmers do is they increase the row spacing on their crops. The less rainfall, the wider the row spacing is the general rule of thumb. And I think this wheat field was planted on 24-inch spacing. And in between, it had plastic plastic between the wheat row, rows, which I've never seen in a wheat field. I've seen it in, like, horticulture, where they put plastic sheets down. But this farmer in your mind, I don't know who he is, which I'm, I'm keen to find out who he is. He's probably on this, on this program at the moment. He had plastic sheets between the wheat rows. And I assume he was doing drip line irrigation underneath the plastic sheets. But he's also put the plastic between the rows to prevent evaporation. Who would have ever thought that we could grow wheat in these areas? is mind-blowing. Are you seeing more innovation like this in parts of Australia where, yeah, typically you wouldn't see cropping country? Well, I think I think high commodity prices from the last two, three years, especially after the Ukraine war, you know, you got wheat prices on the ASX today is about 410 bucks a tonne. Canola tracks about 700 at the moment. High commodity prices means that farmers can go and grow crops in more marginal areas. So if pe- people globally are paying more for food, I think the FAO food index uh, is probably an all-time high. you got rice prices at the moment, record high in the world. you got countries like India banning rice exports, and they're buying all the lentils and desi chickpeas from Australia to them that they can. So definitely I know that people are pushing production boundaries. You know, a lot of my good farmers I know, they farm out of Brewarna on the floodplains there. And they, I think if they have a mindset, and even like places northwest of Walgett, like places like Aduga, which nobody would ever thought of cropping, but they're cropping it now. And they go in, farmers now know, okay, look, they know that probably two out of five years is going to be a failure. But two out of the five is probably going to be really good. And one of the five is maybe going to be half okay or break even. So I think farmers in Australia, probably different to the European farmers, have a mindset that they, they know that they could, you know, in the more marginal areas, when they're planting a crop, they expect that uh, a certain percentage of failure maybe a 40% failure rate. You know, Australia's got the most volatile wheat production in the world. I think that in the droughts of 2018, 19, we were growing, I think it was something like 11 million tons of wheat a year. And then all of a sudden, the next three years in a row, we had a record of like 35 million metric tons of wheat plus. Uh, and no one actually knows the official figures of production in this country because farmers don't like sharing information and they put everything in silos. But yeah, I think, you know, we've got the most volatile wheat production in the world, going from 11 million tons one year to 35 the next. You look at a country like France, which one year grows 37 million tons of wheat, the next year is 32. It's not as volatile. 
But I think what makes Australia such an exciting market to be in for an agriculture trader like myself is the volatility in production. That's cash grain broker at Stonex Australia, Stefan Meyer, and he was speaking to Lily McEwa. It's 24 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau, and Tina Donaldson is our forecaster today. Hi, Tina. Hi, Selena. What's happening on this Tuesday? Yeah, look, still a bit cold out there in this southwesterly airstream in the wake of a front that uh, moved through yesterday. Uh, so just a quick recap of what's happened in the last 24 hours or so. Uh, the rainfall figures to 9am uh, were highest about the lower southeast, where we saw around 2 to 8 millimetres, with Mount Gambier being the highest there at 7.8 millimetres. Uh, elsewhere across the agricultural area, Mount Lofty Ranges in the upper southeast got around 1 to 3 millimetres, and Kangaroo Island, York Peninsula and the mid-north less than one millimetre. Um, looking at the radars, uh, now there's still just the odd light shower pushing up about southern coast, but that should all clear off um, in the next few hours, really, as that new high-pressure system moves in and settles things down. It was also a bit cold um, with some cold morning temps, uh, particularly about parts of the southeast, with Coonawarra down to 2.1 degrees overnight and Pathway 2.7 degrees. Uh, and there has been a frost warning issued for tomorrow morning uh, for the upper southeast, uh, and we could see temperatures down as low as around zero degrees on f Wednesday morning in parts of the upper southeast. So a frost warning currently uh, issued for that. There's also been a sheep graziers warning issued for parts of the Flinders and the mid north districts, um, with cold temperatures just really in the morning um, with uh, south to southeasterly winds also. So, really, that main risk period. Um, just in the morning there. Uh, otherwise, looking at the current forecast and the satellite picture for today, uh, we've still got the odd shower and thunderstorm in the far northwest of the state that's associated with an upper feature that's moving through. Uh, and then in the south, we've got some um, cooler temperatures uh, uh, and some cloud pushing up in an onshore airstream, but that's starting to uh, the cloud is starting to contract southwards uh, as we speak. So still generally cool to mild in the south, with moderate southwest to southeasterly winds. Uh, looking ahead for tomorrow, uh, like I said, cold uh, early with frost patches, particularly for the uh, upper southeast where that frost warning is. Otherwise, just the chance of an isolated shower and possible thunderstorm in the far northwest, and remaining dry uh, and mostly sunny elsewhere. Uh, uh, Temperature-wise, should be uh, a mild to warm day, uh, with mostly southeasterly winds, fresh uh, with afternoon coastal sea breezes. Warm to hot though in the north uh, and the west, with uh, northeaster, southeasterly winds. Uh, for Thursday, that, those showers and thunderstorms in the far northwest of the state will extend just a little bit further eastwards, but still remaining west of around Sejuna to Cooper Pedy. Elsewhere, remaining dry. Mild to warm in the south, grading to warm to hot in the north. And again, southeast to northeasterly winds with fresh afternoon coastal sea breezes. Uh, looking ahead to uh, Friday, uh, that uh, trough that's causing those showers and thunderstorms in the northwest of the state uh, should weaken and those showers and thunderstorms look like they'll contract mostly north of our border on the Friday. Uh, so really a uh, mostly dry day on Friday. Uh, still cool to mild in the south with those onshore winds but grading to warm to hot in the north with moderate south to southeasterly winds turning northeasterly uh, in the north and west and fresh afternoon coastal sea breezes. 
Uh, and then for Saturday, uh, uh, looks like mostly dry conditions, perhaps the odd light shower about the lower southeast coast, but not really much to write home about at this stage um, with our weather dominated by a new high pressure system moving into the bite there on Saturday. Uh, uh, becoming um, still cool to mild, sorry, about southern coastal districts, but warm to hot in the north with moderate south to southeasterly winds uh, tending northeast to northwesterly uh, in the northwest of the state. Um, in terms of rainfall totals, really just expecting some uh, rainfall with those uh, showers and thunderstorms in the west of the state over the next couple of days and not really uh, high totals expected, generally less than two millimetres with possible isolated falls up to five millimetres in the far northwest of the state. Uh, looking ahead to the next couple of days after that, looks like things will start to um, warm uh, on Sunday and Monday and remaining mostly dry for those two days and the chance of a shower or thunderstorm in the far northwest and southeast of the state on the Tuesday at this stage, Selena. Thanks for that, Tina. Tina Donaldson there with our weather. Uh, the Upper Western District of New South Wales, a sunny day tomorrow across uh, both the Upper and Lower Western with daytime temperatures reaching the mid to high 20s. It's half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Coming up in this half an hour, are you trying to cut back a bit on the booze for your health? Well, maybe the tighter household budget means that you're buying less alcohol, less wine these days. Well, these type of trends have seen a significant dive in the amount of Australian wine being exported overseas this past year. More on that to come in a moment. And Australia has walked away from trying to further negotiate a free trade deal with the European Union for now. Among the industries that are pretty happy about that are Australia's dairy farmers and Prosecco makers. I think we'll be popping the cork on Prosecco bottles today. Yes, it really just does give us a lot more confidence for investment in our industry going forward. Hear about why they're happy about all this in this next half an hour as well. More on that soon, but first, Matt Coleman has your news headlines. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, police say one person has been seriously injured in a shark attack on Air Peninsula. Police received a report of an attack at West Orway Loop near Streaky Bay about 10.20 this morning. Streaky Bay is about 300 kilometres northwest of Port Lincoln. Holidaymakers visiting South Australia are being urged to prepare for a potentially severe bushfire season. The state is launching a new campaign today encouraging visitors to develop their bushfire survival plan and check the fire danger rating before visiting a bushfire risk area. SA is predicted to go through a hot and dry summer with a bushfire season already declared. And after eight seasons in the AFLW, Premiership player and Port Adelaide captain Erin Phillips will retire from football. She'll hang up her boots after playing six 66 games and becoming one of the most decorated players in the league. Phillips began her AFLW career at the age of 31 with the Adelaide Crows, where she co-captained the club's first four campaigns. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman there with those headlines. 
Well, irrigators have volunteered to sell the federal government nearly twice the amount or the volume of water it had hoped to purchase from six different valleys in the Murray-Darling Basin. This week, the government revealed it had received more than 250 offers, which added up to more than double the amount of water the tender sought to recover. Clint Jasper explains the tender and what it all means for the plan. So the tender was for 44.3 gigalitres to finish one part of the bridging the gap target under the Murray-Darling Basin plan. So there was a, a little chunk that the federal government needed to make up and it decided to do this through strategic buybacks in six, six different valleys. So those were the Condamine Boulogne in Queensland, the Barwon Darling, New South Wales Border Rivers, Namoy, Lachlan and Murray catchments in New South Wales. And that tender opened uh, uh, a couple of months ago and they've been sorting through the offers. We still don't know the final prices that have been offered. Those are still being uh, finalised. But the federal government confirmed today that offers have been accepted and they received actually 250 offers. And the total amount of what they were offered added up to more than double the amount of water they were seeking. So... They've described that as a very positive response to that strategic uh, purchase and it's they've obviously got more than enough that they need to meet that target. So they're not going to buy the double amount. They'll strategically choose how much to, to make up that 40 gigalitres they're looking to purchase? That's right. So they won't be buying double the 44.3 gigalitres, 88.6 gigalitres, sorry. Um, they'll just be buying the amount that they tended for. So the government says uh, has released the demand in terms of the amount of people wanting to sell, but they didn't say how much. Why? They are still finalising all of those details, I guess, dotting the I's and crossing the T's on, on the contracts they'll undertake with those irrigators. The results will eventually be published on the Oz Tender website. I think there's very strict rules about the disclosure in these situations. So we will eventually know the price. It's just not information that we have at this very moment. This was the first step or the toe in the water, if you will, back to buybacks from the new federal government. Um, Legislation's going to parliament now and and the new water minister, Tanya Plibersek, has been very frank in putting buybacks back on the table for the 450, the extra 450 gigalitres for the basin plan. uh, And speculation is she could buy all of that water. Um, Can anything be read into the success of this tender and what it could mean for possible future water buybacks? We don't know whether the response will be the same in the southern basin as it is in those northern basin valleys. There's obviously a more, uh, I guess, robust and deep market for water in the southern basin. If someone desperately needed to sell their water, they could go out into the market right now and then sell it for a price that's fairly transparent. But the federal government is taking it as a sign of encouragement that there isn't as much opposition to buybacks as you know is sometimes suggested. And going all the way back to when this process was announced, you know, Tanya Plibersek, the water minister, has said all along that you know farmers are essentially lining up to sell their water to the federal government. So I guess it, from the federal government's point of view, it does give them some encouragement that they can press forward and buy more water. But when you start getting up to those really large volumes, there's, of course, uh, a huge shortfall in the sustainable diversion limit adjustment mechanism projects, anywhere between 190 and 300 gigalitres that we're all 
all the base and state governments and the federal government are working out how to gap and then the 450. So there's a lot of water to be purchased. And this was a, a, a relatively small limited tender in the Northern Basin. So it'll be interesting to see what the response is as these buybacks are rolled out more widely across the basin. That's the ABC's Clint Jasper there giving that explainer to Warwick Long. It's 24 minutes to one. Well, people cutting back on alcohol to chase a healthier lifestyle, plus the increased cost of living. Well, these are partly behind an 11% drop in Australia's wine exports this past year. According to Wine Australia's latest export report, which uh, came out today, some of our biggest export markets, such as the United Kingdom and Canada, are buying far less Australian wines, especially cheaper wines, less than $10 per bottle. Wine Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Peter Bailey, told me that downward trajectory is likely to continue, creating some big challenges for the industry. It's a very challenging time for Australian wine exports. In terms of value, they declined by 11% in value and 4% in volume in the 12 months into September. Taking a longer-term view, is this quite a big drop? Yeah, absolutely. So in value terms, we're at the lowest level for nearly a decade, and in volume terms, the lowest in nearly two decades. What's driving this? Look, this is reflecting the exceptionally tough um, global trading conditions at the moment that that really have prevailed since 2020. As far as markets go that we usually export into, where have you seen the biggest declines? Exports have declined to 26 of the top 30 markets, and that includes our key markets in the UK, US and Canada. And Canada, I think, what down 22%. What is it particularly happening within the Canadian market that has seen them not want as much of our wine? Well, with Canada, um, exports have really come off a, a heightened level of um, bulk wine shipments in recent times, which have now started to stabilise. So, and well, packaged uh, volumes into Canada continued their decline. Mm. I mean, they don't take a. I mean, it is a decent share. It is not the largest share of our exports, uh, though. That is the, the biggest drop, uh, as you said. US, UK, these are bigger markets for us, but there has been some uh, some decent drops there as well. Yeah, so in terms of value, the US remains our number one market. Um, the value declined by 11% in the last 12 months um, in value. And the UK, which is our second biggest market, was also down 10% in value. What about uh, the Asian markets? Obviously, there's quite a few different countries that we export into. I understand that's been a bit of a mixed bag. It has. So in terms of markets in growth, we saw some really strong growth into Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong is a major trading hub. And therefore, some of the wine is on ship to other Asian markets. And as with all trading hubs globally, exports levels can vary to these type of markets, depending on changes in business practices, you know, of shipping directly to the selling destination or vice versa. And conversely, we um, saw a decline into Singapore. So, you know, we we could have seen some sort of transfer from exporters going into Singapore, but now going into Hong Kong. Has there been a bit of a change in people's drinking habits? Is this a cost of living issue? And, and wine is sort of one of the first things that people cut back on, perhaps, if uh, if times are tough? Absolutely. I mean, this health and wellness trend, um, it's one of the more influential forces impacting on wine consumption over the longer term. And we've seen not only wine, but all alcohol consumption fall. You know, some people are abstaining from drinking wine, others are drinking less but paying more, while some are also seeking no and low um, alcohol wine options too. And so what we have seen is sort of wine consumption at the sort of premium wine segments, you know, above $10 or more per bottle grow, while at the commercial end, where a lot of our exports are, you know, less than $10, um, has been declining. 
So that really indicates that consumers are drinking less but um, perhaps choosing to purchase at higher price points. And particular varieties, are some being hit harder than others or some that people are still buying? There's no doubt that red wines have been hit harder in the, in the latest 12-month period um, for exports. So in the last 12 months, red wine exports fell by 14% in value and 8% in volume. Um, but then looking at white wine exports, they declined, still declined by 4% in value, but actually saw an increase of 1% in volume in the last 12 months. And Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio have um, sort of bucked the trend a bit there. They're up. Yeah, a number of the white varieties have seen increases in exports, and that's sort of reflective of some of those lighter styles that consumers are gravitating towards. And, of course, so if these figures are for the past year, what role, if any, have the China trade tariffs played in that? Because they, they have been in place for longer than this. Yes, so... Obviously, there's an announcement that China has agreed to undertake a, a review of its import duties on Australian wine, and that's obviously a, a welcome step um, for grape growers and winemakers uh, across the country. But we really have to let that five-month process play out and sort of respect that uh, that process and really can't prejudge any of the outcomes. Yeah, and I guess whatever the outcome of that is, uh, particularly if they do remove those tariffs, this could have a, a, a big impact on the figures But next year, but uh, they wouldn't offset those other markets that have seen a decline? No, so obviously in these last 12 months figures, um, you know, China, China is still uh, down in terms of exports because the market's still effectively closed to Australian exporters. So um, any outcomes over the next six months won't play out in the export figures until sort of 12 months' time. As you say, it is a pretty tough time uh, for those exporters in, in the industry. Uh, looking forward, uh, is there any expectation that Australia will get back to those record highs of, of exporting or is this uh, perhaps the new normal now? Oh, look, I don't think there's any signs that this downward trend will reverse in the short term. Um, as we actually saw some, you know, the value decline accelerate in the latest quarter, which is down 16% compared to the same time last year. So, and, and there's still a lot of volatility sort of in the global trading uh, environment, you know, with a lot, lots of happening in terms of, you know, geopolitical um, issues as well as sort of those more trends that are impacting on uh, alcohol consumption. This has fed into a lot of the issues we're hearing around oversupply at the moment, particularly amongst that red wine in those higher uh, volume producing parts of Australia? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, there's no doubt that our uh, oversupply situation is far more acute um, in red wine and that's really impacting on those bigger commercial producing regions such as the Riverland, Riverina and uh, Murray-Darling-Swan Hill. And does this is highlight uh, perhaps soul-searching for those in the industry as well as looking to perhaps some other markets that do want our product? Well, we're still looking at diversifying our markets, so that's, that's a key focus for us to grow markets um, and a lot of those smaller markets or emerging markets within Asia. So that's still a key focus and, and still looking at uh, you know, holding our own in the US and, and UK markets. But we also need to look at our supply base too just to make sure that you know, supply and demand uh, are balanced. There's Wine Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Peter Bailey. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, let's stick with wine for a moment because uh, well, you, by now you've probably heard lots of concerns in the wine industry from China's wine tariffs to the global red wine oversupply and a push for sustainability deterring people from studying 
Is this deterring people from doing a degree in wine? Associate Professor Chris Ford is the head of wine science at Adelaide University. It says enrolments in their wine degree are about 75% compared with pre-COVID levels. Stephanie Nitschke started by asking him if market trends and environmental concerns have affected enrolments. I think to a small extent, um, you know, the students we get are they tend to be pretty passionate in both whether they're doing winemaking or the um, agriculture degree. And they're, they're very, very aware of situations and sort of the future that um, things like sustainability demand. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it is the sort of thing you'd want to research and, yeah, make sure there is a, a really strong future for employment. Um, is there a trend in how students enter study? Does it tend to be straight from high school or do they like to go out and get some experience in the industry first? Well, that, that's quite interesting because coming up for this interview, I did a bit of a look through our data. and um, In terms of numbers, both for the wine degree, our Bachelor of Viticulture and Enology, and our Agricultural Science degree, the Bachelor of Agricultural Science, the numbers pre and post COVID are not too bad. We're about 75% of pre COVID numbers in our wine degree, and about, right, we're on par in the agricultural degree. What's different, and what has been different for quite a while, is that about 60% of the students entering the Ag Science degree come to us direct from school. So they were at school last year, they've started a wine degree, this, uh, an Ag degree this year. That's about 30%, so half that number, for the wine degree. And instead what we see are the students have had a year or so out working perhaps, or maybe doing some hospitality, or you know, getting some other experience, and then deciding that for them, at this time, the wine industry... Um, whether that be winemaking or viticulture, is where they now want to pursue their sort of academic future. So we're seeing changes in viticulture and agriculture all the time. How do you now sort of approach teaching students for careers in these fields? I imagine that uh, the curriculum would have to change a lot as well. It does, yes. We're very aware as researchers as well as educators, if you like, of how much the impact of areas like engineering, data science, modelling climate and that sort of thing are impacting upon viticulture, for instance, and then similarly with winemaking, how new technologies can improve the efficiencies there. So we're looking all of the time to incorporate learning about those technologies and how they, not so much how they're impacting today, but how they will impact our graduates in 10 or 15 or 20 years' time, because clearly that's the crux time for today's students. It is their future that we're educating them for, and that's going to be a future very much heavily focused upon, if you like, technology, to give it a simple term. Um, And how are the job or industry prospects for students once they've completed their study? Um, Are there plenty of jobs to go into? There are, yes. It's, uh, It's quite interesting, particularly in our Ag degree, that many of the students have got a job before they finish. Um, The wine degree is similar. Uh, A lot of winemaking students will, immediately upon graduation, they will do a vintage somewhere in Australia. It's a required part of the winemaking degree that in the final year, the fourth year, students undertake a vintage. In many cases, they will go back to that winery for a second vintage or they'll travel somewhere else within Australia. And then, of course, it's possible to kind of travel around the world and follow the vintage for one or more years or to jump in and out of vintages at different parts of the time of the year. So plenty of work. Um, I was talking to one of my colleagues specifically about this matter the other day, and he he said that um, he has a lot of contacts through the industry. And what they're seeing 
particularly, he said, in the was it Langhorn Creek and current Langhorn Creek, Currency Creek area, is that many, many agricultural science students are now working in the viticultural industry as well. So there are plenty, plenty of jobs out there for everybody. And as someone who sees these students come through every year, you know, do you feel optimistic about the future of the industry? I do, very much so, yeah. I mean, industries all go through sort of, I wouldn't say booms and busts, but, you know, highs and lows. And um, at the moment, certainly the wine industry has had some significant challenges. We can only hope that they will reduce somewhat if we can change the trade in, uh, situation with China and that. That will gradually ease some of the difficulties. And, you know, the drinking preferences of the public are changing, but then we are matching our viticulture and winemaking technologies to address that. Um, the students are just as passionate as they've ever been. And, you know, those that want to work in vineyards are really, really aware of issues around sustainability and, you know, the way in which management of vineyards helps us to improve wine quality whilst at the same time you know, improving things like water efficiency so we don't have to irrigate so much, we don't have to put on so many chemicals. So the students come into us with all of those sorts of passions, I'd say, mm. as much as they always have done. As Adelaide University's Head of the Discipline of Wine Science, Chris Ford, and he was speaking there to Stephanie Nitschke. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, the dairy industry has thrown its support behind the federal government walking away from free trade negotiations with the European Union. Trade Minister Don Farrell has told the EU negotiators that further talks scheduled in Osaka, Japan this week would not now go ahead because the deal had not progressed. Australian Dairy Farmers President and South Australian Dairy Farmer Rick Gladigo says fair trade has to come ahead of free trade. It's actually been a good result for dairy at this stage, but we're certainly aware that uh, the negotiations will, will continue. They're not going to throw the whole lot away. Just that this could take a few years before we maybe ever get to uh, another position on it or, or what happens. So, But from the dairy industry, look, it's a, it's a good result for us. We can still keep using all those names. As you know, there was over 50, 50 names that were, were under fire. So um, the market access was also another issue. But yeah, can you go uh, further yeah, into that? What was on the line for your industry? The, the names was one thing, but it was a whole lot more than that for dairy, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, market access was another one. We've always been saying we want like for like. We're pretty open to say, as we've said multiple times, you know, 70,000 tonnes of EU products coming in here already. Uh, we sent them 400 last year uh, and they still wanted to cry poverty over that one So and, and not allow us better access into the EU. So, And when you consider... You know, cheese, they bring in about 28,000 tonnes of cheese and after the first, just over 11,000 tonnes, then they pay a tariff on it, which is fairly significant, but they're still quite happy to do it. So this would have actually opened the gaze to them of about to send even more. We, as, I, I, as I would say, we would be flooded with EU product. So then comes this weekend. It was all coming to a head in Osaka. The NFF and other groups like yours were out last week imploring the Trade Minister not to sign this deal. When did you know you were going to Japan and what have the events been like for the last few days? So we knew already a couple of weeks ago we'd already been invited to, to come across by the government that we should should be here as well as a few of the other sectors. So uh, so we've made the plans. We were told there could be a couple more offers from the EU. Uh, we met with a minister who was looking for our final position, probably more around the red meat sector, a sugar sector than dairy. And as you know, the, the minister said in July, uh, if I don't get a better deal, I'll walk away. And 
you know, and to his credit and to the team's credit, they've done exactly that. All the sectors, are, ag sectors are saying, you know, we, we uh, congratulate them on what they've done and, and holding the line. Obviously, the others want them to continue negotiations. Uh, I'm not sure whether we're quite at that stage as dairy. We're, we're sort of quite happy to say, you know, this is actually a benefit to our industry if this doesn't get much further. But obviously, you know, there are other ag sectors who there is some value in, in trying to get a, a decent deal. You know, it's a, we're talking free trading, but we're also talking fair trade. And, and that's the part that, that hasn't come out of this uh, this trade agreement for agriculture. Is it a missed opportunity in some regards? Because if you could get a good deal to this market, it could be quite lucrative. I think that's the word, if. If it was the problem, if we could get one, yes, it was going to be quite lucrative for, it could be quite lucrative for other sectors, but that's just not forthcoming. And that's that's why, you know, the other ag sectors are saying, well, don't, we're not saying throw this away. We want to see negotiations continue. It's it's obviously going to slow right off now. And uh, EU going into election middle of next year, you know, obviously we have an Australian election, federal election towards the end of the year, maybe early 2024. So, so it's years, really. Sort of really. It's years up. before this will yeah, get to this point I, again. That's what I'm expecting. That's what even what the minister is actually saying as well, as we could be years away from, from getting something done. So, so, so for those, yes, it's disappointing, but look, there's other trade opportunities there. I mean, for us, it's, you know, the focus is certainly on Asia, but UK free trade deal now sitting there, which uh, has benefit to some of these sectors as well. So, and the other issue with them was was around conditionality. I mean, I I reckon GIS to us was conditionality. So, but there was conditionalities for those other sectors in and how they could sell, you know, even trade it there. As, as we've been reminded more than once, you know, Canada's got a pretty good deal when they haven't even sent a ton of product into the EU yet. As South Australian dairy farmer and president of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo, speaking there with Warwick Long. And uh, Rick's actually been in Japan for those talks. It sounds like a bit of an earlier trip home than he may have expected this week. Well, still on this EU deal and Prosecco producers are popping corks in celebration of the news that Australia has walked away from this trade deal. Prosecco is a $200 million industry in Australia. Growers already dealing with the loss of the China market were worried they could lose the name of the Italian grape variety. Natalie Pizzini is a third-generation member of the Pizzini family that produces Prosecco. She was very relieved that these negotiations had broken down. I think we'll be popping the cork on Prosecco bottles. Yes, definitely, at least for a short period of time. You know, you never can count um, your chickens, but uh, we're certainly very pleased that um, Minister Farrell chose not to sign a bad deal at this time. How big is this news? We're, we're hearing from, from journalists that have been covering the trade deals that this is basically the the end of of the push to get a free trade agreement. Some stuff might happen on the on the sidelines in the future, but in terms of the the key negotiations and signing the deal, this is the end of that, uh, and that is the end of an almighty battle you've been fighting to keep the name of this wine. Yes, it certainly is. I mean, in two thousand and nine, when the um, Italians changed the name from Prosecco to Galera um, as a grape variety, we have been working as an industry, as, and especially in the King Valley, very hard to to fight that battle. Um, we won the, the court case in 2015 to say that, yes, Prosecco is a grape variety, and then to start again when the EU um, free trade negotiations started a couple of years ago it certainly feels like it has been a long time coming. 
And we, we certainly won't rest on our laurels. We know that into the future we could face this question again. But for now, uh, we're relieved. Was it a nervous weekend knowing that this was the final hours of these negotiations? To be honest, it's actually been a nervous six months because each six weeks uh, it seems that the negotiation rounds come up and uh, to have uh, a final decision made this weekend, we certainly uh, were crossing fingers, toes and everything leading into the weekend. But you, like I said earlier, you just can't count your chickens. How important is Prosecco to the King Valley, to your wine region? Oh, look, you know, for the many of the producers of Prosecco in the King Valley, uh, like Brown Brothers, Del Zotto, Chris Mont, Sam Miranda, uh, it is a very important um, revenue stream for them. I know specifically for Pizzini, it's over 30% of our revenue annually and growing. In 2001, it was uh, Prosecco was worth over $200 million to the Australian economy. So uh, our office $60 million base in 2007, at a time when uh, we're facing cost of living pressures, uh, where we're trading down from, um, as consumers, we're trading down from champagne to Prosecco. Uh, and uh, so over the next 12 months or so, we'll see uh, greater revenue from that particular grape variety. The other important aspect of this decision is it gives our growers confidence. Uh, I know of a grower that had 100 acres that he wanted to plant out to Prosecco, but until we have this decision, it could have been another grape variety. But what grape variety do you plant? So now this gives certainty to our growers and at a time when we can't sell that much Cabernet or Shiraz into China, it gives the uh, the growers in other wine regions confidence to plant other Italian grape varieties and um, invest in them more like Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Montepulciano. Up until now, it would be very difficult to consider placing a lot of energy in that space because if we had have lost the, uh, the use of the word Prosecco for the grape variety, as an industry, we were worried about what variety would be next. As Natalie Pizzini from Pizzini Wines speaking there with Warwick Long. It's oh, about a minute and a half away from the one o'clock news and coming up on your radio this afternoon, Sonia Feldoff. Hello. Hello, Selena. Now, uh, news today that Erin Phillips uh, is hanging up the boots and we know that she was pretty much the poster girl for AFLW uh, when she first came over. I mean, she's arguably the, the, the code's best player ever, uh, and she's hanging up her boots. So what kind of legacy does she have? We'll be speaking with Liz Walsh today on the program, but also her dad, uh, Greg Phillips. Really looking forward to that. And, of course, uh, we'll make sure you're kept across the latest, which is really awful news, the mm. second in a month shark attack in South Australian waters, this time off Streaky Bay. We'll be taking you to some local residents over there to find out some of the latest 
on that front. But on some bright news, if you are someone who has um, difficulties conceiving a child uh, and you can't afford IVF, some really great news in Australia in the last week or two. Oh, well, that will maybe be some good news for some uh, for some or potential families or hope families out there uh, this afternoon on Sonia Feldoff's program. Thanks for your company today. I've been Selena Green and I'll be back with you tomorrow for more Country Hour. But it's time for the news now. It's one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.